0: Hey everyone and welcome back to Risky Business, your weekly information, security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray and I am feeling refreshed and relaxed after a couple of weeks off. But we'll be ruining that in just a moment by talking through all the security news of the last few weeks with our good friend Adam Boileau. Uh, This week's show is brought to you by Thinkst Canary uh, and uh, Thinkst Canary's founder, Haroon Mir, will join us this week uh, in this week's sponsor interview to talk about what might happen to InfoSec programs now the world economy is getting all funky. Uh, That is coming up later, but first up, of course, it is time for a check of the security news with our good friend Adam Boileau. And Adam, uh, obviously a big situation that's been evolving uh, more or less the entire time we've been on break is this situation in Costa Rica where Conti has ransomwareed something like 27 uh, government departments, including the Ministry of Finance. No one can pay their taxes through the usual process. They have to do it by pen and paper and get to a certain bank branch to try to pay their value-added tax for that, uh, that tax period. And you know, you got the president of, of uh, Costa Rica saying it's they're, they're at war with Conti and claiming there are uh, uh, inside collaborators working with the wa- ransomware group. I mean, just an extraordinary situation.
1: Yeah, it, 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 of all the things that we could have imagined ransomware to turn into, the idea that an entire national government, you know, would be held at ransom by a bunch of hackers is like, it's just cyberpunk future, right? I mean, you'd read that in a book and yet here we are and I'm sure, mm. Costa Rica, you know, Declared state of emergency and you know, are falling back to a bunch of other processes, but what a mess, you know. And I, you know, part of me wonders, you know, like Costa Rica does Costa Rica have like you know, elite strike troops that can parachute into you know, <laughs> into St. Petersburg or whatever and sort things out? Because that's like you know, that's kind of what you imagine when you're you know, we're at war with hackers, but I don't know what you know, it's just a wild situation. I don't even know what to say about it other than. It's just wild, you know. Like, yeah. I mean, uh, Conti,
0: Conti came into this uh, demanding a you know very low <laughs> ransom because governments you know, I, don't typically pay. Catalan has been looking into this and covering it in the risky business news newsletter, and um, yeah, I mean, they, they demanded a low ransom because it, it, the odds of them getting paid were very very low. They since doubled it to twenty million US and Costa Rica. To its credit, has just said no. But you do wonder where this leaves them, and there is a real distinct lack of reporting on what's been happening there the last few days. You know, there was a big flurry of coverage when the president was out there making uh, making comments about insiders and it being a war and an emergency, but um, that coverage has pretty much dried up, even though Conti, I think, said they were going to nuke the key uh, a couple of days ago, uh, yet no follow-on coverage. But I think its I, I just think it's too early to see how much this is going to wind up costing Costa Rica in the, in the medium term, because they might be able to muddle through with backup processes and stuff. But you do wonder how much lasting damage this might do to the country, which is a wild thing to say out loud.
1: It, I mean, it really is, right? And, and, you know, when you're a country like Costa Rica, that's not, you know, it's not huge – you still have to have, you know, one of everything. I mean, you know, a small country, and even a country like New Zealand, not very many people relative to, you know, places in the world, you still got to have one of everything. You know, you've got to have customs and borders and banks and tax and, you know, going through the work of rebuilding all of those systems is proportionally a lot more expensive for a small country and, you know, like getting access to, a, you know, the number of IT people that they're going to need and all of the, you know, it's, it's a very, very complicated set of things you're going to have to do, to be able to recover from this, and yet you absolutely can't pay. Uh, So, yeah, I really do feel for them. Like, what a terrible situation to be in. And, you know, you've got to wonder whether, you know, like, can we as a world tolerate this from Conti or from from anyone else? Uh, And the answer is probably not, right? But what are we going to do about it? Well,
0: this is a conversation that you and I have maybe had a few times uh, on the <laughs> yes, show, Adam. Exactly and, right. You know, to, to me, this is as significant uh, as the Colonial Pipeline hack. And I think it's it's absolutely fuel for the um, the think tank set and the policy set. They're going to be absolutely all <laughs> over this. Yes. Because really, I mean, even, even if you think, oh, does this have relevance to the United States and its agencies, which are among the the better prepared to deal with the, the ransomware threat if they do decide to go hunting these guys? And, you know, you think about it in terms of there's a group of criminals out there causing trouble, you know, for, for all manner of countries that could be your allies. I mean, it's one thing if a bank in an allied country has a problem – but this is something completely different, you know. I, I think this just adds more to the case that says we need to go gloves off with these um, uh, with these criminals.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is just not tolerable, and it wasn't tolerable before. You know, when it was you know, health agencies, you know, national hospitals, all sorts of things. When we had that you know situation here in New Zealand with a you know major hospital being shut down by ransomware operators, it's just not tolerable. But you know, the, the, what the gloves off look like. I mean, you know, and I'm sure there are some, you know, there are some places and some agencies where the gloves are already kind of off. But, you know, seeing really good, you know, actual results that stop this happening, I, yeah, I mean, we just haven't seen that yet. And, you know, as you said, we have both discussed this at length. And at yeah. some point you do have to take them off and, and release the, you know, the aforementioned hounds.
0: Well, I do feel like things were ramping up a little bit. And then, of course, the Ukraine-Russia situation kicked off and ransomware took a back seat. And that's entirely uh, reasonable. And we didn't have any of those big marquee-style uh, attacks, really. You know, things, at least on the media front, were... Certainly certainly quietened down after Colonial. I think uh, part of that was some of these crews actually pulling their heads in. Uh, You know, we saw the reval arrests, things like that. More on that in a moment. Um, But it does feel like it's back, front and centre, as an issue. And, uh, you know, maybe we need to see some pressure reapplied to policymakers to come up with some more creative solutions for this one. And now, you you did mention schools and hospitals. And, uh, you know, in the news run sheet this week, we're looking at uh, K-12 school districts in New Mexico and Ohio. Uh, apparently got themselves ransomware. Uh, that was, I think, CLOP uh, ransomware. And also Greenland, uh, its National Health Service has been crippled, uh, or their, their language, severely limited uh, after a cyber attack, which, you know, these days you read that and you just know that it's ransomware. So, you know, they're still hitting schools, they're still hitting hospitals, they're hitting entire governments. Frankly, I'm surprised we're still sort of talking about it in terms of like, when is someone going to do something serious?
1: Yes, and I suppose, you know, that when the things in Ukraine kicked off in them, there was quite a bit of infighting and people trying to establish, you know, what their ransomware crews looked like when that conflict was going on. You know, it feels like a few of them have reorged and maybe they are emboldened now by, you know, Russia's isolation. You know, if everyone's already sanctioned and everyone's already isolated, then there's kind of probably not a whole bunch of cost to them and, you know, maybe taking out a whole country you know, seems like a thing that is safer for them at the moment because of the situation. And, you know, like, I guess any, any, you know, they're not expecting anything from their own government, you know, against them because of that isolation. And, you know, any escalation against ransomware crews is going to be viewed, you know, through the lens of the ongoing conflict as well. So, like, maybe they feel emboldened by that. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's possible. You know, there were a few people predicting that uh, you know, as this as this Ukraine Russia situation uh, drew out, we would expect to see ransomware crews go a bit feral because it was uh, something where you know maybe the Russian government would would consider it a plus if they were out there raising hell. Right now, we've seen a bunch of sanctions and stuff apl- a- a- applied to like crypto exchanges and things like that. So I think the the US and its allies are actually making some headway there. I think getting paid uh, now is harder. It is just harder for these ransomware crews to do much with their Bitcoin. Um, but you know we're seeing this continuous rebranding as well. So Conti, which is the group behind the Costa Rica uh, incident, they are actually shutting down, disbanding, rebranding, doing that usual sort of ransomware crew churn thing. Their brand has been has become a little bit toxic among other criminals. And affiliates since they got all of their stuff doxed uh, at the at the onset of the of the Russia Ukraine war. So that's that's an interesting data point there.
1: Yeah, there certainly feels like there is a lot of churn in that environment at the moment, and you know we characterize these as you know as groups or operations and i know when we saw all those like the the conti leaks you know chat logs and other things that so you can see elements of like normal organizational structure and sort of business in there but at the same time right these are a bunch of criminals you know often who don't trust each other often who don't really understand each other's identities you know it is a pretty you know changeable constantly moving um, you know, environment to work in, I'm sure. So, I mean, you know, we do expect a degree of, you know, everything shuffling around in with all of the other geopolitics going on. Um, but, yeah, it's just hard. And I feel, I feel for some of the, you know, threat analyst people and, you know, ransomware experts they have to kind of keep track of, you know, the sort of ever-shifting social scene. Like, it must be like reading, you know, one of those, like, sort of society, you know, magazines or whatever with everybody's relationship details in it uh, and all of the, you know, rumours and scuttlebutt and stuff. So, yeah, definitely things moving around and you know it's just really hard to read from the outside you know what it all means other than that there's you know a bunch of russians uh you know doing a bunch of hacking and making a lot of money but yeah it's a uh, it's certainly you know I, I imagine it must be a really hard place to work at the moment in the you know yeah yeah
0: it's a tough grind in the, um, in the <laughs> ransomware minds. <laughs> yes. But, you know, for some, of these, for some of these ransomware people, as it turns out, Adam, according to an indictment from uh, America's Department of Justice, some, for some of them, ransomware is their second gig because yeah. <laughs> there's an indictment that came down against a French-Venezuelan cardiologist. Uh, this guy lives in Venezuela, and apparently he's, he's created a, um, a fairly well-respected tool called Thanos, that's used in the underground to to you know spin off ransomware variants and things like that. Uh, so this guy is a cardiologist in his mid fifties who apparently sidelined in ransomware tooling. Like, and he's now been indicted. I doubt he's going to be extradited, but I mean, wow! I was I, I couldn't believe it when I saw this one come down. What did you make of it? I mean,
1: this is I mean I'm, I want to laugh, but it's almost kind of not funny in a way. But. Uh, yeah, so this guy, you know, he built up, like, pointy-clicky, you-can-make-your-own-ransomware tool tool. Um, and, you know, those of you who remember kind of movie hacking from the 90s, there's always, like, you know pointy clicky spinny roundy 3d virus builders and like that's basically what he was making and then doing the tech support like selling it on forums and helping people out uh, apparently you know um, people who'd hacked places would show up uh, you know and ask for his advice about you know how to now go and you know monetize wherever they've broken into and yeah he was well regarded on the various forums you know good reputation top quality customs with support and yeah it's just a cardiologist doing it in his evenings like it's <laughs>
0: Yeah, and he was helping he out like people it, associated you know? with the government of Iran, and like you know, just up to <laughs> all of it. But you know, I, I guess there's a lot of psychopaths work in medicine, so I guess it makes mm, sense, yeah, right? <laughs> it's just—it's
1: not what I expected. It's not no, my, you it's don't not my, expect you know, my mental picture.
0: No, you don't expect a cardiologist to be charged with doing ransomware stuff. Like it's just, and and (laughs) apparently doing it well as well. Doing it well. I mean, part of me is impressed with how prolific this guy can be in in multiple fields. I mean, there's that.
1: Um, (laughs) You've got to hand it to him.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Now uh, we we should mention too, and we we kind of alluded to it earlier, that uh, apparently Revil, and this is a Russian ransomware crew, a bunch of its members were actually arrested by Russian law enforcement a few months ago, and it made a lot of news. Uh, That crew is back, but no one's really sure if those people have been released or if this is like OG members, but their hacking looks kind of trash. So, you know, either they're rusty or it's new people or like no one's really 100% sure uh, who is behind this, this reborn Revil ransomware crew, but it does look like Revil's back.
1: Yes, so at the very least, like that kind of tools and techniques and source code appears to be back. Um, You know, there was some speculation as to, you know, how important the people who were arrested were uh, in the overall operation. Um, But yeah, there's certainly evidence that you know, there is ransomware out there that looks like it's built from, you know, begat from the source code of sort of OG Revil. Some of the tools and techniques look similar. You know, some of the trade crafters similar, but perhaps not quite as good. So, you know, it could be affiliates picking up, you know, who've got access to some of the tooling. Uh, you know, it could be that the, some of the people who are arrested are not arrested anymore, you know, because who knows what's going on in Russia. Um, but yeah, there's definitely, to some extent, some part of Revil is back and operating and, uh, you know, locking people's stuff up.
0: Yeah. And uh, we got a cute story here. The Bank of Zambia, a central bank, uh, they got ransomware. They were able to recover. And then they sent a dick pic to the, uh, to the crew uh, that said, uh, it came with a caption that said, stop locking bank networks thinking that you will monetize something. Learn to monetize <laughs> and,
1: uh, Yeah, that's, that, that should be on everybody's you know incident response playbook is to you know tell the ransomware crew uh, where to go and what to do and, and then recover without them. That, that's yeah. perfect. I wonder if it
0: was like a, a homegrown pick. Do you know what I mean? Like I wonder if someone I wonder if it was like the admin or, you know, someone yeah, who just Whether went, it's like
1: original Bank of Zambia deck, that's what you're thinking. Yeah,
0: of. exactly, right? Where they were like, F- this guy, you know, click. <laughs> 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 to me, that would make it better than just grabbing one off the internet <laughs> personally. Uh, and we got some um, proof of concept ransomware that, you know, honestly, if all ransomware transitioned to, uh, transitioned to this, we might be able to get behind it, Adam.
1: Yes, uh, it looks like somebody, perhaps from India, took some open source ransomware, like which I don't know why that's a thing to start with, off GitHub, uh, and then modified it to uh, demand that you do good deeds uh, to regain yeah. the, you know, the keys to your locked up material. So it says, for example, that you should uh, take blankets to your local orphanage or child's shelter uh, and then post pictures on, soci- on your social media saying you've become a better person because you were infected with this goodwill ransomware.
0: You need to do good deeds and then post it to social media. One of them that's funny is like you take five less fortunate children to Domino's Pizza Hut or KFC for a treat and take pictures (laughs) or videos and post them on social media. And I'm thinking, why not give them something nutritious? They're less fortunate. Well,
1: yeah, exactly. Like Maybe this is a guerrilla marketing campaign from the pizza, big pizza. (laughs) They're behind it, man but you know that,
0: that'd be interesting let's see if it gets some traction I, you know and you know maybe some of the og crews could start doing this and you know once you've made all of your money in technology that's when you move into philanthropy and this could be a twist mm, on that it's that's,
1: that's very true yeah oh, i could see that and encourage everybody <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah this is, this is a good there's a good pivot good pivot good pivot
0: um Now look, on a serious note though, and just to tie off the ransomware uh, discussion, CyberScoop is carrying an interesting uh, story here from Suzanne Smalley, uh, which says that water companies in the United States are finding that they're uninsurable against ransomware attacks because there's so many of them in that sector. And uh, I mean, like at first glance, okay, well, you know, that's a pretty limited sector and whatever, but I think we're going to see more of this.
1: Yeah, I mean, I know in the past I have said you know like insurance was going to save us all, and then it didn't. Maybe being uninsurable will save us all in, in the end because you know this is a consequence of you know the impact of attacks on these environments is real high, and you know kind of structurally you know because of how long equipment lasts and the amount of money that you make selling water, you know, there's not a lot of resources to do you know to improve the cybersecurity of these sorts of things, uh, and. Yeah, I mean, I guess you can see why when you're doing the numbers as an insurance company, why it would just make not much sense to go sell insurance to orgs like this. And that does really, you know, I'm sure many of us who, you know, who've dealt with, you know, boards and exec, well, we'll just buy insurance. That's easier than solving these very, very hard problems. Like if that option is taken away, it does kind of change things. Um, And so, yeah, seeing this, you know, like National Association of Water Companies conference, you know, having them sitting around talking about the fact that they can't get insurance, that does feel important. Um, I don't yeah. know where it's going to go. You know whether they can solve the problems, but it does feel important.
0: Well, apparently this this guy Nick Santillo, uh, who's the vice president for digital infrastructure and security at American Water, which is a public utility, uh, said that uh, insurers are increasingly requiring water utilities to meet stringent cybersecurity requirements. So bef- before they'll uh, get insurance, and as you pointed out, this was at a you know <laughs> at a water uh, utilities like conference in DC. So. You know, that's the buzz. That's the chat at that conference. And you, you you do sort of think, well, maybe we'll see some action. But I don't know. Does that mean people are going to have to pay more for water? And is that fair or just? Or should we just release yeah. the hounds?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, it's a complicated set of, of you know, kind of problems and yeah. underinvestment. And, you know, it's not just cybersecurity, right, I mean, water infrastructure, uh, you know, is super expensive and long-lasting and, you know, it's one of those, you know, things where we don't bear the full cost of the things that we've done, much like in, you know, in in all of cyber, you know, all of the Windows NT boxes we deployed are coming back to haunt us, and, Mm. you know, the same is true of really long-lived industrial infrastructure.
0: Uh, The Department of Justice in the United States uh, on May 19th. Issued some new guidance to prosecutors saying that good faith security research should not be charged. As a crime under the CFAA. Now, this is just guidance. This, you know, it doesn't mean that you can go hack someone and then say, I was just researching you, bro, uh, and that it's all sweet. Uh, But it does make it clear that if someone's intention is really just to find and report a bug or they notice something weird and, you know, poke at it a little bit and then, you know, send in a report, that's probably not something that should be charged as a federal crime, which seems like reasonable guidance, maybe about 10 years too late, but it's, you know, better late than never.
1: Yes, yeah, this is, is good to see. And I mean, this is, as you say, it's not a law change, but it is pretty clear guidance to prosecutors uh, and law enforcement about exactly what this law is meant to be for. Uh, and it also has some things to say about, um, you know, kind of clarifying to what extent the CFAA applies to, you know, kind of violating terms and conditions of a website as opposed to, you know, committing a federal crime. Um, so, yeah. A little bit of sense is good, as you say, a little bit too late, um, but definitely, you know, given the way that security research has become so much more acceptable, you know, with bug bounty programs and all those kinds of things, like there is just so much more room for positive security research and this does provide a bit of clarity for people as to what to expect.
0: Yeah, but you can't retrospectively justify something as research. They're on to you.
1: Uh, with, <laughs> yeah, they're with that. that. <laughs> yeah, you're not that clever, buddy.
0: You're not that <laughs> clever. All right, uh, Krebs on Security, Brian Krebs. Uh, he's got a cracking report up here uh, about an investigation into. Well, the DEA is investigating something that, by the looks of things, Brian reported to it, which is that it's intelligence sharing portal, which you could log into with one of those, you know, very awesome, uh, you know, US government issued smart card things for very strong authentication also allowed uh, you know, simple username and password uh, logins. And it looks like <laughs> <laughs> somehow uh, some of the, those, those naughty internet kids managed to obtain one. Doesn't look like this is the sort of portal that would give up the sort of information that those naughty kids want. Uh, it looks more like the sort of information that cartel people <laughs> would want to get to. So Brian reports it to the DEA, and look, they did the the boilerplate s- statement, which is just so funny to me. Uh, reported it to them. They wouldn't confirm. They just said, DEA takes cybersecurity and information of intrusions seriously and investigates all such reports to the fullest extent. Uh, so that's like a cliche and a word salad all <laughs> in one but yeah, what does it what does it look like happened here? It just looks like someone somehow snagged a username and uh, password into this DEA system, which seems to track things like, um, uh, you know, the sports cars of spe- suspected criminals and things like that, right?
1: Yeah, this portal system provides access to like a, a data from a number of sources, you know, meant to support investigations, um, and you know, pulls together things like you know, stuff that's been seized from criminal groups and information about, you know, gun ownership and licensing and records and stuff. So, you know, a reasonable kind of grab bag of, of you know, useful law enforcement things. And, you know, you can see this being useful for some of the doxing stuff um, that, you know, the internet kids you alluded to are up to, but certainly useful for a whole bunch of people. Uh, Krebs noted that he actually got... Uh, details about the access uh, from the guy that originally ran Doxpin that then the lapsus kid was the admin of and then did a bad job of and so on so like is tied in with that crew that was doing you know a bunch of identity theft and swatting and doxing and all that kind of stuff so you know certainly useful for them but lord you can imagine other other uses for access to this kind of system
0: yeah, so it's the current owner of Doxbin who gave it to Krebs and I think it was the previous owner of Doxbin who's alleged to be involved in the yes. yeah, lapsus. Haven't That's heard much that. from lapsus uh, lately, uh, so Touchwood we don't um, Touchwood that continues. Uh, let us just say that. <laughs> now Adam, uh, last time we recorded a show, you and I spoke briefly about this intrusion into the Nauru police force. Uh, and the exfiltration of all of their email, basically. And, you know, someone was posting it up on on, on a, you know, leak site saying, um, you know, free the refugees and the next uh, the next Australian government needs to change its policy and stuff. And, you know, you and I both had a, a feeling about this one, that it might have been in some way kind of election interference uh, in the upcoming Australian election, which was over the weekend, and uh, we have had a change of government. But your employer, CyberCX, is actually... Uh, published an intelligence note on this, which is, uh, in my mind, it makes for some fairly interesting reading. It certainly doesn't suggest uh, that this was a state that was behind it, but it was someone who was very organized. <laughs> Let's just say that. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, now this is it was a really interesting set of analysis out of our threat intel team, um, and they started looking into you know, we don't have any unique access to the data or the systems um, that are involved uh, in, you know, in, in information being leaked, but looking at the metadata, looking at the timelines, looking at, um, you know, the various information that we've got about, you know, how the information was posted, the creation times of a bunch of the resources, you know, websites and, and portals and so on that were used in this process. Um, and, yeah, the conclusions that we we can draw from it are not you know not concrete but there is just a bunch of stuff that kind of lines up to make this feel you know not authentic to what it was presented as you know as you know people activists or whatever else it did feel as you say a little bit more organized and the timelines are a little bit tight and there's a bunch of interesting data points in there that you know just do make it look coordinated in a way that you wouldn't necessarily expect from activists like for example um you know, the timeline of when data gets stolen to when it gets published by, um, by the group that published it. It's like something like 80 minutes elapsed. Like, it, there's just a bunch of things that make it look, you know, a little bit sus for activists. So you can draw your own conclusions from it. It is just, you know, kind of metadata and, um, you know, nothing well, particularly there's more, there's more than metadata.
0: That, the thing that I found very interesting was um, there was, a, you guys did an analysis uh, on the text that accompanied the leak And found that a great deal of it was just cut and pasted from like news articles and things like that, which would suggest either someone's deploying some really, you know, Next level opsec, or uh, and what I think is probably more likely, th- this just isn't an issue that's near and dear to their heart like they claim, and they just thought, okay, well, instead of writing my own manifesto about this issue that I care deeply about, I'm just going to copy and paste the stuff that sounds convincing from elsewhere. So who knows, it,
1: right? Like that certainly that certainly helps with uh, you know the amount of linguists you have to get on on you know on staff to uh, make sure that the English is good, you know.
0: Yeah, and that's that's <laughs> the other thing as well, right? Like could be you know. English is not first language, but anyway, we don't know. We're none the wiser, but I did find it an interesting bit of research, and I've linked through to it in this week's show notes. Uh, Another thing that uh, we discovered uh, while we were on break is uh, details on this tool called Fronten. Now, this is a tool that it was developed by a company that was linked to the FSB, uh, Russia's FSB. And initially, when it was reported on, everyone said it was a DDoS tool. Turns out it was a little bit more capable than, than that. And it was actually engineered to allow for the mass distribution of misinformation and disinformation over social media networks. No evidence that it's ever actually been used. But this is... Still, a really interesting thing to read about because it gives you a bit of an insight into how some of these uh, uh, disinfo shops actually go about the mechanics of of posting this stuff to social networks without getting their, you know, five IPs banned or whatever, right? Like this is how you spread this stuff out through a botnet. Did you find this interesting as well?
1: Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. Um, I mean, we've talked a bunch about botnets being assembled out of, you know, consumer routers, you know, because home internet connections are fast, but it does also provide you a really great cover, you know, for doing social media manipulation and other disinfo things. Um, And the challenges of doing that at scale are, you know, not insignificant. um, And... I think the researchers who looked into this actually found maybe a test or a, like a demo instance of the backend portal um, that supported the social media and disinformation parts of this of this set of tooling uh, and had a look at it. And there's a bunch of you know interesting functionality for doing you know bulk management of accounts, bulk management of posting, you know, kind of coordinating you know the use of social you know lots and lots of social media accounts you know for spreading disinformation um, and doing that from people's residential you know connections you know via and you know a, a device botnet makes a whole bunch of sense and you know, doing all that you know in a coordinated fashion because you want to be able to do things like you know have those accounts post consistently from the same geographic location and you know that requires sort of binding between the social media layer and you know how your networking is working so it makes sense to do it all in one tool uh, so you can see why they would do that so i thought that was you know it's interesting to see you know those technical problems actually solved at scale. Um, so, well, and yeah, it, what what
0: I found interesting about it is, like, if you if you and I were to sit down and actually try to solve this problem, this is exactly
1: how we'd do it. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yes. Yeah, <laughs> clearly, some people have thought about it pretty well, and I think the company Oday Technologies, uh, you know. I guess they have some smart people. They did set out to solve this problem, uh, you know, in the sensible way. So, you know, good for them, I guess. Good for them.
0: Um, you you got to hand it to
1: them. <laughs> you do. Yes. seems to be, you do got to <laughs> hand it to them. Uh,
0: Now, uh, something that we talk about all too often on this show uh, is uh, supply chain attacks. They seem to be getting a little bit higher impact just incrementally as we go. Uh, And we've got one here where a Python library that was apparently really quite popular, and a PHP one as well, uh, got hijacked. We, they got hijacked and, you know, Trojan versions got out there. And uh, the purpose of this trojaning was to steal AWS uh, keys, right? So that's not what you want, right, in your supply chain, uh, key stealers. But <laughs> no, uh, walk us through no, this one. <laughs> walk us through this one, Adam. Was it, is, is, it, is it as bad as I'm saying? Because, like, if you just look at the numbers, you know, some of these packages are, are getting downloaded 20,000 times a week. So you're thinking that's a lot of AWS keys.
1: Yes, this is you know pretty good as supply chain attacks go. Um, the Ctx Python Ctx module, as you say, twenty thousand something times a week. Uh, there was also a PHP password hashing library that's you know had over its lifetime a couple of million downloads, so not entirely small either. Uh, feels like the same person um, because they were both x filling AWS creds to the same endpoint on Heroku. The Python package uh, Ctx uh, was, I think, the domain name of the original maintainer. Uh, expired. And the attacker registered it. Uh, the other one, uh, they had abandoned their GitHub account, like deleted their account, and then the attacker just registered the same name and uh, password reset, and and off, uh, off they went. In the case of the Ctx one, the attacker actually also took the time to go back and backdoor all of the old versions that were stored as well, which I thought you know that's a nice touch because uh, most people don't attention to that, detail. Doesn't. They could have a big future. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think some of the people who were rummaging around this, uh, you know, on infosec Twitter, did look like they figured out the. Idea identity of the person behind it Uh, so maybe some bad times are in their future so make sure to check your opsec if you're going to go and hijack packages in the libraries but you know the this kind of supply chain attack is you know it's effective and as you say like 20,000 downloads a week does get you a lot of AWS accounts
0: Awesome Bluetooth relay attacks, Adam. Uh, hit the news. Uh, this, was, uh, this was everywhere last week. Basically, it's a relay attack. So if you're using a Bluetooth um, car key, which if you own something like a Tesla, you do. It's like a Bluetooth, low power Bluetooth proximity sort of thing. Uh, someone has figured out how to make relay attacks work so they can rack off with your Tesla.
1: Yeah, this is interesting research where the uh, the person who's put together this attack has actually kind of moved it lower down the stack. Previous, you know, Bluetooth relaying attacks kind of worked, kind of, if you're thinking about it, you know, IP network kind of at the TCP layer, and this is down in the data link layer, uh, very, very close to the actual stuff over the radio. And the previous controls we had that involve kind of, you know, crypto and other things further up the stack are defeated by this approach. It uh, requires a bit of radio engineering, but software-defined radios are, are super accessible these days. So good technical work. Um, You know, the root cause here is that you know, Bluetooth really kind of wasn't designed for this sort of proximity stuff and to you know, really prevent relaying. You have to have very tight timing and you have to have kind of distance bounded. Controls that make sure the radio signal is happening fast enough to be really proximate. Uh, And that's, you know, that is pretty hard and just not really a thing that Bluetooth was meant to do. Like, Bluetooth is meant to kind of just work uh, in a bunch of really different scenarios, you know, for personal area networking. And yeah, its use in this context has always been a bit problematic. Um, It's not just Tesla's. Of course, we've seen a lot of headlines that are, you know, using the Tesla name. Um, to get the attention. But really, this is going to work on, you know, almost anything Bluetooth. Yeah. Um, where, you know, proximity authentication is what's going on. So, yeah, great work. Uh, and I guess we will see this weaponized in the wild by, you know, car thieves and whoever else.
0: Yeah, I'd imagine that'll happen pretty quick, right? Because apparently you only need 100 bucks worth of gear uh, to do this. I think the reason they pick on Tesla in this case is because their Bluetooth uh, keying works really well, right? So I can understand why they actually picked on Tesla. You know, I own one, much to my shame. And, uh, you know, I just... (laughs) You key is your phone you walk up to the car you open the door you know it's 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 one of those things where you're like huh nice i don't know that too many car makers have figured out how to get it working quite as well uh, and it will actually be quite funny if i have to turn that off and use the old you know credit card style thing and hold it up near the door pillar to get into my car from now on um, and when i say funny no, it won't be funny it'll be quite inconvenient be but it'll anyway pain in the ass Pain in the ass. Uh, and uh, look, staying with uh, Bluetooth stuff, some really uh, some really cool uh, security research into attacks that you can do against an iPhone when it is, you know, telling you that it's switched off. Because uh, spoiler alert, it never really is switched off. You can kind of, yeah, you know, nothing's... you can kill the OS, but a lot of the subsystems stay live. And uh, uh, yeah. apparently, you can own the. It is the Bluetooth subsystem, isn't it?
1: Yeah, this is a research from the um, Technical University of Darmstadt uh, looking into being able to update the firmware on the Bluetooth controller. And the Bluetooth controller does things other than just Bluetooth. It's kind of like the general purpose low-power radio part. Uh, so that it's the bit that does uh, the, like, find my broadcasts and other you know bits and pieces like that. Uh, so, yeah, they found that you could... Uh, update the firmware on this chip it didn't have any kind of integrity checking you know signing uh, of the firmware i guess it's a pretty low power chip by design and then of course yeah you could have malware or something else you know beaconing things in there that would you know allow you to track the phone or whatever else you wanted to do uh, from the perspective of this embedded controller which i guess makes sense you know crypto is not really compatible with super low power Um, to actually do this you kind of have to have jailbroken the phone or be in a position of um, you know kind of pretty serious compromise i would imagine that some of the you know kind of high-end iphone malware developers would have you know looked at this if you were a sp- if you were a spook for example this would be a great place uh, to go stick some things so i would be surprised if this was the first research into this particular area of the iphone um so yeah it's it's cool work um and you know the fact that nothing is ever really turned off anymore is a little bit disturbing sometimes
0: yeah, well I, I totally missed that you need that this only applied to jailbroken iPhones, which makes it, you know, very low impact, really.
1: Yeah, yeah so for for regular people not super exciting but you know i imagine if you were nso group or some other you know developer of ios malware this is a thing that probably would be worth looking into you know it seems like an extra useful feature
0: yeah so is there any uh case to be made that you can then propagate the attack from this you know low power rf module into the os or is it more just like yeah you can do like an evil beacon that'll show up and whatever
1: Uh, I don't think this research showed a path back into the operating system. Um, Like in some of the baseband uh, attacks that we've seen, there is a way to go kind of leverage that backup into code exec in the operating system for long-term persistence. I don't think that was demonstrated in this particular case. Uh, But, you know, any component of a complicated system like this where the firmware can be modified, you know, does increase the amount of attack surface And in ways that, you know, sometimes the designers don't really think you know, they don't think that there would be a security boundary in that particular yeah. example they you assume you can trust some subcomponent chip uh, so you know there may be more research to be done there
0: I uh, got an interesting write-up here from uh, Microsoft's uh, Security Response Center. At uh, look, it's it's a paper about what they're calling pre hijacking, uh, pre hijacking attacks on web user accounts. Basically, if there is a web service that doesn't verify a new user's um, email address, you can just go along, uh, you know, register an account as that user. Maybe add a backup email uh, account, and then when the real user comes along and actually uh, creates an account, you can reset the password and whatever. Uh, it's actually a pretty interesting read. Um, Obviously, the big mitigation here is that online services should really verify email addresses before activating accounts. but uh, you know it, 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 it's a cool read. It's a fun read.
1: Yeah, I think if you're a you know a bug bounty person or you're a web app hacker, like this is a, a technique that you should at least be across. It's kind of a um, an extension of what we used to call like session fixation attacks where you could like set somebody's cookie in advance you know, like their session cookie in advance that would then, when they logged in, you would know their session cookie because it wasn't reset during the login process. This is research into kind of other uh, similar sorts of attacks where an attacker, you know, pre-creates some condition before the user authenticates or signs up or whatever else to then be able to gain access to their account afterwards. And one of the examples they have looked at here is, you know, in a situation where there's federated authentication and like site local authentication, if you can, pre-create a local sites account then the user logs in through a federated system and those accounts kind of get merged together in a way that you know perhaps the designer of the system didn't expect then you can retain access to the account there's a bunch of other kind of variations of that sort of you know setting up a scenario in advance that then get lets you have access later on. And, you know, because we are bodging together, you know, so many web systems now out of components from different vendors and different places and federated bits and single sign-on, like the interaction between those systems has always been a a fertile source of bugs. Um and yeah, this kind of it's it's some pretty structured research into that kind of overall class of attacks and yeah if you're a web app hacker this is i, I think probably on your must read uh, list for the week
0: caesar last week issued a directive uh, for uh, federal government agencies to patch a you know pretty bad vmware bug and uh yeah there's just been like it's been a non-stop carnival of vmware bugs this year hasn't it really
1: yeah, VMware's been having a bad time. And I guess, you know, they, a lot of the VMware tech stack was built in the golden era of Java. <laughs> and it's kind of coming back to bite them now. I, I don't know if this one was yet another one of the of the Java bugs uh, that they've had. But yeah, VMware's been having a very, very bad time uh, lately. And, you know, their move from just being a hypervisor vendor to all sorts of network perimeter stuff and desktop virtualization and load balancing and, and ID stuff. Like, you know, the trust in their relatively robust hypervisor did not extend to all the rest of the products, it now turns out. And uh, yeah, bad time if you're a big VMware shop, um, but hopefully everyone's got that message and it's just patching all the VMware stuff all the time.
0: Now, the joke used to be that every time I took a holiday, something very, very bad would happen. Uh, Lately, though, it seems like every time I take a holiday, there's a uh, F5 Big IP volume with like a CVSS score of 11. (laughs) And um, yeah, pretty much as soon as we put the show down uh, three weeks ago, boom, uh, you know, an F5 bug. And this one, this one's like, how is this not a 10, right? It's a 9.8 severity rating. Like, where do you lose the 0.2 on this one? Because wasn't it like you just throw a string at it and it executes the command that you told it to execute
1: yeah like the bug is literally there's a path in the management like management web server that's called like tmutil bash and bash is you know (laughs) the common unix shell like literally you just send shell commands to the endpoint with no auth and it runs them so what's it what's a 10 um,
0: like what is a 10 is that when you just connect to a port and it drops a root shell like that
1: must be- <laughs> I think ten is you connect to it and then the centrifuge blows up. Yeah. Like right. that. Maybe okay. that's the ten. I think I think in this case the point two that they lost is you actually have to have an F five big IP to be vulnerable. Maybe that's the point two, Maybe think. that's the
0: point two. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but Funny thing, man, there were reports too that someone was just auto-RMRFing um, all of these things, but it looks like that might have just been a few honeypots that, you know, because when that was happening, I saw it kicking off on Twitter and Catalan's like, no, it's not really happening. Um, so he was he was all over that one, but um, yeah. Yeah. You just think like <laughs> stuff like that, man. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be there. And F five, like the the problem with the big IP stuff is there's not really much else that does it the same way. And you can do useful stuff with it. I just wish it was better. You know what I mean? Like F five is one of those I things where it's believe- like this is such good gear, but like why have this? You know?
1: Yeah. Like you just, uh, I don't know how you could ship that particular component. You know, with like please run the show, commanders route with no off. Like how did that get through? Yeah. QA or review or like just it beggars belief it just slipped through man <laughs> just slipped through somehow
0: and the person who probably made the mistake probably left 10 years ago you know what I mean yeah, so it's yeah, just yeah, one I of those things right. and uh, another bit of news that uh, that came out very shortly after we put down uh, the last uh, show that we did is that Google Apple and Microsoft are all very committed uh, to FIDO apparently so they're all pushing this passwordless thing and um, you know I think it's I personally think it's got great promise, And it's great to see the, uh, the big, big, big tech firms getting behind this.
1: Yeah, this is, is really great progress. I mean, the Fido Alliance has done great work both technically and, you know, just kind of getting people to think about other things than passwords and, you know, getting the big orgs like, you know, Microsoft and, and Google and Apple uh, all together to really solve a very very big problem is just it's great work uh, and it's going to make hackers' lives more difficult. It's going to make users' lives more convenient, you know, and, you know, this, it's just good work um, and glad to see it.
0: Yeah, so uh, instead of people being owned by phishing, it's going to be OAuth phishing. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and, yeah, attacking devices and, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, hackers aren't going to go away, but, you know, if we can get past the point where you can log into, you know, some... Department of Justice, you know, criminal record system with username and password, we're doing good. But they had the PIV
0: cards, man. That's why I'm just (laughs) rubbing my temples. Like, why bother setting up PIV card access if you're just going to let them... Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Anyway. Um, Yeah, someone lost a battle in a meeting over that one. Uh, I can guarantee it. Uh, Because some executive didn't want to use a piv card or what if you lose one or you know it was just something dumb like that anyway i can't stick
1: it in my ipad
0: (laughs) that's it um adam that is actually it uh for the news Uh, it's been a pleasure to chat to you again my friend and we'll do it all again next week
1: yeah thanks so much pat talk to you then
0: that was adam boileau with a check of the security news there it is time for this week's sponsor interview now with industry legend Harun Mir. With interest rates rising, investment going down, and the world economy just picking up kind of a wobbly vibe lately, one may wonder, what will happen to InfoSec budgets and spending? What is going to change in the vendor landscape? Well, Thinxed Canary founder Haroon Mir joined me to have that conversation and also to talk about why Thinxed Canary's honeypots, uh, he calls them birds, are austerity-friendly. Here he is with his first prediction which is that MSSPs are going to come back. I think there's going to
2: be a revival for MSSPs. I think over the last while we've seen MSSPs pop up again and it's it's perfectly cyclical, right? Like when we started when we started doing security like in the early 2000s, Schneier had his counterpane and they were doing managed security services. You don't need this we'll drop in detection, we'll, we'll look at the lights, we'll go in. And that thing falls in and out of favor. And in a way, the companies that are doing successful uh, EDRs have kind of backstopped it with a type of service like that. So you've actually got smart analysts in a room looking at alerts. And and I think there is uh, there is some value in that, if it can be done right, like I've heard good things about some vendors there, but, but mostly, and, and this is something that I've been hoping for for a while, I think companies need to stop and do a reasonable take on what matters to them because I think the infosec industry is largely still driven by what can I buy as opposed to what matters to me and how can I get that? And uh, yeah, I think that those are two different things.
0: I mean, one of the reasons, like you know, and we'll turn this into a, into the plugging things to canary bit. You know, <laughs> sure. uh, one of the th- one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about this is because you know canaries are very low cost, very easy to de- to deploy, and they get you that very high quality signaling. Right? If one of those things is chirping at you, uh, you know you've got a problem. But and this is a this is another thing I that you know I wanted to discuss with you. Sure. Right? You can't paper over a really badly operated network with a canary because you know say the thing starts chirping at you right the 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 next part is yeah then what now what right you know that there's an intruder in your network if you don't have any instrumentation if you don't have any insight like what are you supposed to do at that point so so my question to you is what's the bare minimum that one of your customers needs to be doing to be in a position to actually get Use value. out of a canary when it comes to the what next?
2: Yeah, it's it's a super good question. And look, early on, uh, we were worried about that. Like like we were even, one of our questions was, do we build a service around it? And right now we've got a CS team who'll reach out and try to help people with it. But, but let's ignore that uh, for a moment. When COVID first hit, we were worried about the same thing. Like we thought there'd be a belt tightening and I wasn't sure what would happen uh, with COVID. And, and we had heaps of customers reach out and say, listen, like we've tightened our belts here, we're keeping our birds because, like you say, they low cost, they give us an alert, we, we need to know when it happens. Over COVID, in terms of customers lost, like we lost two customers, and that's because they disappeared like completely, like like two of those yeah. uh, companies don't travel exist. agents or whatever. It, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they just don't exist anymore, and, and that sucks. Um, but but it was good validation for us because like companies that were running like for five years went, we'll keep this because. Um, in terms of deploying them, and uh, what happens if you don't have uh, a a team? Now I'm obviously biased here because like we. Believe the stuff, and it's in our blood, and there's self uh, reinforcement because we talk to other people who believe the same. But but I feel if if you lost everything, if you lost, even if you match the thought that I had that said you need to know what matters to you. Ten canaries help you know what matters to you, because like like if you went to an, a a brand new network, and I spoke to a CISO from a from a Swiss company the other day who just took over this network and has just now figured out he's got a mess, my honest advice to him is take 10 canaries, like it's 10K, and drop them in these places that you just mentioned. And do whatever else you are doing, like forget about the canaries. And mainly, I think in in that deployment, your canaries are assumption, assumption verifiers. Like like currently you think, well, look, we're not being attacked on these boxes. Our problem is email compromise. Or you go, we don't have to worry about that. Our problem is X. That's cool. Like in your half an hour and 10K today, you drop 10 canaries. And if they never go off, you are right. Don't subscribe next year. But chances are what'll happen is within that year, you'll figure out that actually the third party network you're still connected to is letting people in and X. Or you find out that actually your cloud rules are periodically being changed because of poor administration and a bird that should never have been getting touched is now getting touched constantly. And so in that way, like I say, the canaries become assumption verifiers. It's like, you didn't think you had a problem here, but maybe you do. And, and our pitch is, as long as we can make it so that we get out of your way, like, pay the small amount, forget about it, it doesn't add to your cost. And, and then all that remains is your question that says, well, okay, a canary now went off. Now what? What? And, and one of the reasons we are so super fanatical about the signal that comes from Canary is because it affects how we have that conversation. If, if you get lots of, or even some, maybe so-so alerts, then it taxes your people. And your people don't know how to react. But if the alert that comes back tells you, listen, this is a problem, well now Someone
0: just threw someone just threw an exploit at a canary from it, it, this workstation. Yeah or, yeah, or
2: like you've got your code signing server and the AWS key on it just got used to log into Amazon. Like like you getting solar wins right now. And at that point you get to decide, well, okay, we decided to take our fee our, to drop the security budget this year. But in light of this, we've clearly got a problem. And we at least need to harden the code science section, or hey, we thought we were okay, but the foreign officers are a problem, and we need to look at it. So, so really, the the thing for us there is, we think people should re-examine. worry about
0: worry about the the then what after you know what you're looking at.
2: Yeah, and and so we make it so that it's really easy, like like if you needed a deployment plan and you are still going to have to make a project to drop your canaries. Now we're competing with stuff and now we should justify, should they do identity management? Should they roll out tokens? Should they do all of these things or you? But we deliberately designed to say, we're not that. Drop us in today. Like, like these days you drop a canary and you plug it in and it's good to go. Don't do anything else with it. And so our whole point is drop them in and if they don't change your assumptions, they don't but you probably want to know it's, it's a make your other decisions more informed.
0: I mean, I guess I was thinking too, that we tend to overcomplicate the way that we talk about this stuff, right? So if you got an alert on a canary saying that this workstation is probably bad, you know, I was thinking, well, if you don't have EDR, how are you going to orchestrate a thing? And when in reality, you can just walk over to the bloody thing and turn it off. You yeah. know, or, or unplug it from the network and then worry about it. Then, right? There's 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 options that don't involve million dollar vendor solutions to to you know. It's
2: totally that. It's it's also just the. It's exactly what you say, right? So so you get. We sometimes get people who say like, well, what if what if an administrator found this? And an administrator tried it. It's like yes. Then you'd know that in two minutes because you'd go and say, hey, why did this happen? and then that's solved. In, in many ways, uh, InfoSec gets overcomplicated because people can think of a billion uh, different possibilities. And, and so anytime there's a solution, people, people look for bunches of them. And, and one of the things we feel strongly in, it's a different soapbox completely. There's a few people who said it, I think Moxie said it early on with Signal. He said that that your vendor has to make choices that that in the old days you'd get vendors who'd give you every dial and every knob, um, and you end up with these incredibly complex solutions that can do everything. Because you just described you just described EDR, but anyway, it, it, sure, and and that's why it happens, right? Because the vendors know that someone's going to ask for it, and instead of thinking about that thing and making a decision about what's best for the customer. You just put a knob on it and you say, hey, customer, it's your decision. You make that call. And that's why you have all these products that just potentially could have helped if only someone turned those knobs right, but they don't work. And and Moxie took fire when he started doing this with Signal, where he went, we're going to make the best choices that we believe for these users, and it's going to be easier. Like a super stupid... Uh, <laughs> almost unrelated story like recently we remade business cards now that humans can travel again and historically our business cards all had our pgp signatures and now we've got half a company that's saying we don't use pgp like we've never used pgp in our life and we look around and we go yep actually we haven't received pgp mail-in forever and and the kids just like they don't see the point of it. And it's one of those things where PGP had every option possible, many foot guns, um, which is why almost everyone blew somebody part off with it uh, when they were using it at some point. And, and to this end, and it's less security and it's more productive. Like uh, the folks at Apple have been saying it forever. Uh, Jason Fried says, he says like, like making opinionated software like that takes more time because the, the company making it has to genuinely think about it because they're saying, well, if we make the wrong choices, we won't work and you'll stop buying our stuff or, or the market will let us know. But to not make those choices is lazy. Um, and yeah, lazy is kind of why we uh, get some of the pain we get in InfoSec.
0: I think this is a, this was a very long uh, riff on something <laughs> I mentioned about uh, stuff being needlessly complicated, but... You know, it, it, it is it is related to that broader point, right? Which is we forget that, okay, this box is bad, let's maybe turn it off. I mean, I guess my issue, right, is that then you've got to try to understand what your blast radius is, right? And unless you have your shit together, that's going to be difficult, right? So, I it mean, is. you can have a canary telling you something that's up, but how do you measure that that blast radius? Like what is the minimum you require? to be able to make use of a canary. And I'm talking about a hardware canary on a physical network.
2: Yeah, so so I think it'll vary. I I think, so so obviously I can't give you the the easiest answer for it. What I can tell you is, it gets you to do that thinking and it narrows your focus in a way that matters. So so for example, if you're a four-man law firm and you drop a canary, and the canary tells you that at 2 a.m. this morning, someone mapped to it and copied these files off it, then like from my side, your canary's done a stellar job because like you didn't know that that was going on in your office. And now even if you've got no IT dude in the office, no tech dude in the office, when you have a conversation with your technical friend and you say to him at two this morning, something mapped to this and copied these fake files, that pushes the conversation in a very different place to, well, you should harden your Wi-Fi and you should make sure you've got this compliance. It very narrowly focuses on a, you've got a fire and you need to fight that fire. And and like Ollie Whitehouse is big on talking about like evidence-based security and moving to, to more evidence-based security. In a way, canaries give you that in a physical manifestation. It's like if you can drop them without pain and without costing you an arm and a leg, they give you a pointer that says, yep, problem here. Like, yep, you need to do something here. And after that, so so I mentioned we have an active CS team now as we grew up and became a, a real company. And and if un- unless the customers opted out, our CS team will get that alert, reach out and say, hey, we just saw this. Like, this is a pretty serious thing. You probably want to get someone on it or do you know why this happened, that sort of stuff. And, and people love it as an add-on service, but we've I, I don't think we've ever had a case where, where the customer has said, sorry, we flat don't know what to do now. Like like I think for all yeah. the And I think I think also yeah.
0: once you've been through the process of manually trying to figure out what the blast radius is, then you in a you're better position to be able to I, do that quicker next time.
2: Exactly right. More companies should be thinking blast radius, should be thinking crown jewels, should be thinking like does this matter? And and this is not related to canaries, but but like a few years ago I, I gave a talk at, at Blackhead and I was saying I think lots of the stuff that people think they worry about they maybe don't have to. And and it was sacrilege yeah. at the time, but I was saying like, hey, maybe patching isn't security's job. Like like maybe that's yeah. IT's job and maybe you just need to worry about well, emails to the board.
0: Well, last week I actually ran uh, an interview with Ryan Caliber of Proofpoint Executive Vice President there who said exactly the same thing. We actually uh, managed to splice in a bit of George Carlin. Uh, saying that while you're watching a quiet one, a noisy one will kill you. Uh, and that, that's absolutely right. While you're going and patching deeply buried internal systems that no one has ever used to do lateral movement through uh, your, your board is getting BEC'd. Um, but Harun Mia, that's all we're going to have time for. Thank you very much for joining us for that conversation. And uh, yeah, let's see what the next year brings in terms of austerity. And um, I always use that word with, a, with my tongue a bit in my cheek because of, because it is so loaded as you, as you identified. Uh, but yeah, let's see what the next year brings and it was great to chat to you my friend always cool pat that was haroon Mir of things to canary there big thanks to him for that and you can check them out at canary.tools or head over to canary.tools forward slash why if you want to see a neat little video about why some of the world's best security teams pick Canary. And that is it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back next week with more security news and analysis but until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.